Today's show is brought to you by Airtable. What is Airtable? It's part spreadsheet, part database, and entirely flexible. Take maintaining an editorial calendar. You need to manage writers, editors, copy editors, social media people, all on tight deadlines. Anyone who's been in a newsroom can tell you it gets messy fast. With Airtable, you can get organized in your own way. That's why leading teams at places like BuzzFeed Studios, Group 9 Media, and Time all use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule. You could even use it to organize a podcast. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. On today's show, I talked to Josh Marshall, the founder and publisher of Talking Points Memo. TPM started all the way back in 2000 as Josh's personal blog. It's come a long way since then as an independent media company. Josh and I discussed Talking Points Memo Prime, their subscription product, which now makes up over half of their revenue. We also talk about digital advertising and how to compete for the small share of the big pie that Google and Facebook are taking. And I also get Josh to handicap Trump getting impeached and Trump getting reelected. One note, this podcast is now available for early access to our Digiday Plus subscribers. Digiday Plus is Digiday's membership program. So if you want a head start on our podcast, join Digiday Plus and you will get access to our podcast on Mondays rather than Wednesdays. It's an extra two days. So for more information, visit Digiday.com and you'll see the Digiday Plus tab on the menu. There are a lot of other great benefits to joining this membership program. Now here's my conversation with Josh. Hope you enjoy it. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we're finally doing this. Um, yeah, absolutely. So let's actually go back um, because I think it's, Im- it's impressive that you've been at it since 2000. Uh, I mean, it was a personal blog. (laughs) It was a personal blog then, right? I mean, so you were part of the the early wave of political bloggers. That is right. That is right. I mean, when, when, at least when, it's not altogether accurate, but at least when when I started, all that I knew about in terms of blogs or what they were, were basically two other guys doing political blogging. Now, later I found out, obviously, there was, there was, blogging outside of politics. Andrew Sullivan was doing it. And Mickey Kouse. So yeah, it was, but it was, it was very limited then. And then basically for the first four or five years, it was a one person operation. And then in, at the end of 2005, hired first employee and then incorporated as a business. So as a, as a business, um, or as a kind of you know multi-person business, it goes back, uh, I guess now twelve or thirteen years. That's still that's a long time in digital media. Years. Yeah, yeah, totally. And the idea was, hey, there's this, there's all these different advertising systems out there. We can focus on the content. And now, uh, you know, there's going to be this amazing spring of independent voices, and it's going to be supported by by wonderful targeted advertising. Uh, yeah, you mean today or no, what it seemed then, like then? Then, well, you know, it's 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 funny in in the in the I don't think most of us kind of at least most of us doing blogging at the time really uh, even were thinking in those terms. It just uh, not in terms of like targeting, 
Uh, I just mean yeah. that there was going to be ways that advertising was back then. It was there absolutely was no discussion of paywalls or any of this. That was sort of weird. Exactly. That was totally foreign. And yes, and absolutely. it was against the whole idea of blogging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, so obviously, a lot has changed since then. But you know, it's continued as as a business, um, and advertising was the lifeblood of the business. Yeah, for for basically for most of the business's life, advertising was basically 100% of the revenue model. Um, and for most of that time, and there have been sort of undulations, it was, like a lot of publications, a mix of programmatic, third-party, you know, network advertising, and mm-hmm. then direct advertising. And um, since we're a small operation and are an independent, we always focused a lot on programmatic advertising when it was called remnant advertising when it was the thing you you know you kind of yeah. did with the extra stuff and we were always very aggressive on figuring out ways to incrementally bump up our CPMs through third party advertising we were much more aggressive and I, I want to say much smarter about it than other publications but other publications didn't need to be smart about it they had other revenue stream. So that was always a big part of what we did. And then starting in 2008, 2009, we got much more into direct advertising. Uh, and for, for us, since we're a news and politics publication, that was heavily focused on uh, corporate reputation and uh, advocacy advertising either into Washington, D.C. or to the sort of the political class nationwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh that was we actually we started we started our subscription program at the end of 2012 uh so it goes it goes way back and uh but it's it's only now that it is more than half of our revenue comes from right. subscriptions but talk to me about the decision to be independent because there are very few independent media companies out there now and and we certainly saw a wave of of venture capital going into different publications but there was the idea that that you know you got to scale um well you know the 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 decision starts off when you are a you know uh, struggling young journalist and you just start publishing and so you're you're independent by default right <laughs> at the beginning you don't have a choice <laughs> exactly um i would say certainly in the in the late aughts, there was a lot of money on offer either to be bought or to be invested in and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, that is, that's how Huffington Post, that, that's how Huffington Post came into existence. You know, all the kind of players in our space, that's, mm-hmm. they either started that way or they then got investment and so forth. And... I think uh, for me, as a journalist, I was always, control was always very key to me. Um, and I was lucky to understand pretty quickly when I started talking to people about investing in the company, what you were signing when you, when you mm-hmm. do that. And that uh, you, you don't have control of what you're doing. Um, simple as that. And you can end up with people who are not journalists or not have your, you know, priorities and and goals and so forth 
calling the shots. And I wasn't willing to do that. And that definitely, you know, that's why... T- and the sacrifice there is you end up staying smaller than yeah, you end scaling. Up, exactly. Into- you end up staying smaller. You end up, you make less money. You know, all, all, all the different... I mean, I'm not complaining. I mean, I have a you know, I, I make a nice income and I support my family, all that kind of stuff. So it's not like, it's not like, you know, <laughs> like a, a sob story or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's why, you know, Business Insider is a certain s- size and scale and Huffington and TPM is dramatically smaller. And that's the decision that we made. Now we did actually, uh, in the 2009-10 period, we did do a small friends and family investment round mm-hmm. um but it was it was like literally friends and family with uh, there's one kind of well-known investor in in involved in it at a at a you know at a, at a, at a tiny amount but that was uh constrained by the fact that basically i i structured the deal in such a way that I basically remain totally in control. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. so since then, like Google and Facebook have taken over most of digital advertising, um, if not directly, then indirectly. I mean, I'm sure yeah, a absolutely. lot of your revenue is dependent oh, absolutely. on Google. Absolutely. Um, so it's a total. Uh, give me the case for independent media is surviving now. Uh, <laughs> I would say that it is. I don't want to say it's impossible. I I would say it is unwise and extremely difficult for an independent publication to stay in existence without a heavy reliance on subscription revenues. Um, Or, I mean, I don't want to make a sort of a fetish out of subscription revenues. Basically, revenues that are based on a direct relationship with readers who have a commitment to the publication, which in most cases means subscription revenues. I think that a lot of publications just went in a wrong direction Focusing on scale, uh, a lot of venture investment, Silicon Valley, a lot of journalism was was distorted and sent off in a wrong direction by following a path that really makes sense for a certain kind of technology company, which has to do with scale and and network dependence and. and stuff like you know path dependence and stuff like that you mean like feeding the facebook beast yeah well i mean just just in the sense of just to give an example when years ago when i was talking to potential investors in tpm what they wanted to hear was about hockey stick growth which that's what all venture investors want to want to see and I remember various conversations. Media doesn't yeah. grow that way. Do they no. know that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it can just unnaturally. It like, can. But like, there's natural growth in media, and organic growth does not look like a hockey stick in media. I yeah. don't, maybe, I, maybe other businesses. I, are different. I would say there's there are there are rare occasions, but it, exactly it does well. And I and I would say there's two things. Um, one is the vast majority of the time it doesn't operate that way. But what is even more important is that the tech model of hockey stick growth is based on, you know, the reason you want to get to the top of the, of the part of the stick that you hold is that then you will have either uh, network path dependence or basically monopoly power to destroy everybody else and, and command monopoly rents, you know, more yeah. or less. Okay. That is definitely not like MediaWorks. 
You know, yeah. there are some publications that grow like crazy, but the idea that you are going to become dominant and therefore and and then either buy or destroy everyone else, it totally doesn't work that way. I mean, so BuzzFeed the whole got pretty close to the top of that hockey stick as far as audience growth goes. Yeah, yeah. And then at the top of it was... Just not, keeps not, locking. Not a lot. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Just keep going. Keep, keeps, well, it keeps locking for the, to, to, to maintain the scale. Um, but again, there, there are all sorts of things that I think were implicit in the media business Implicit assumptions in the media business as it existed in the second decade of this century that made no sense. Okay, give, and, me, give me a couple of those. Well, and I don't want to pick on BuzzFeed here, but again, BuzzFeed got you know absolutely humongous, and by for a lot of a lot of great reasons. Um, but I think in the background was the assumption that. You know, when Microsoft got humongous, when Facebook got humongous, their size allowed them to exert great market dominance. Uh, BuzzFeed has no market dominance like that. Mm-hmm. They have to keep working at it. So there, there, there are assumptions like that about what scale gets you that, by and large, are just not accurate. And then, you know, you, you throw into that everything that ended up happening with the platforms and everything. That's a whole other problem. Um, but that that's 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 a big issue, and I think we're seeing a reckoning because of a lot of different flawed assumptions. Right. I mean, you you wrote about this actually last year. You were a little you were early to it. I mean, it was a slow slow moving. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, that was happening. Um, with the scale publications, with the the pivot to video that didn't go anywhere right. for most right. publications. Right. Um. So let's talk about subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So now they're over half of of revenue. How many subscribers? We have uh, just over twenty six thousand subscribers now. Okay, explain the subscription program and how. Because I mean, look, it started as a blog, and mm-hmm. the whole idea of blog was the free expression, and it's right. sort of antithetical to to right. paywalls. So just putting up an entire, you know, I think the the paywall sort of. The way it's been painted is is now like a lot more flexible because mm-hmm. it's not all or nothing. Right, right. And 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 in our case, we the vast majority of what we publish is free to everyone, just as it always was. Um, so, Ad supported. Correct, and and even within, if you are a member, if you are a Prime member, which is our subscription program, the content that is exclusively if you want to call it paywalled or subscription content, has no ads. But even if you're a subscriber, there's still ads on the rest of the site. Um, So what you get if you are a subscriber is you get access to a significant but still very much the minority of content on the the overall site. You see many fewer ads. Uh, You have access to our discussion areas, uh, you know, kind of souped up. RSS feeds, various features, and so forth. So you have, but but the the majority of it is uh, a lot less ads and access to content that non-subscribers don't have. A key thing, also, and this was you know in the in the early in the early period of our subscription program, is we have a very committed readership who thinks we are important to them and, in some sense, unique and. A lot of, and I know, you know, Slate in their program. I mean, I will say this: uh, 
David Plotz, when they were thinking of rebringing back their subscription program, mm-hmm. called me up and wanted to see how to do it based on <laughs> what we were doing. Okay. A, little, a little bragging there. I'll, I'll give you a... Well, a, Slate was early. They, they were absolutely early on to the subscriptions. They totally... Well, the, I had the umbrella back in like 98. Well, that, that, that was the thing. They did it like, they gave like up two after decades like six ago. Months. Exactly. Gave <laughs> up. And then, when they, and then when they came back is when David was running. Anyway, so that's what you get as a subscriber to TPM. But... Um, a key part of it is people want to make sure we continue to exist. So it's all of those right. things combined. We'll be right back after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Teamwork has never been more important. And that's a hard thing to pull off in an environment like today's where everything is constantly changing. Enter Airtable. This is a tool that can fit your process, but also it is powerful enough that it keeps everyone on the same page. Time uses Airtable to manage its entire creative process, from the original idea to creating content to getting it out the door. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Head to Airtable.com slash Digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Thank you, Airtable. Now back to the episode. Um, how much did uh, Trump play a role in this? I mean, not as as a subscriber. I'm assuming he's not, but maybe he is. You know, but, I haven't looked through the database. We'll have <laughs> look, to see. A lot of people, and I would imagine yeah. that TPM in particular, there was a lot of people who took out subscriptions after. I mean, obviously very engaged, but also outraged. There was, it was, we definitely got a bump. I would say that it is, it. it's probably less significant than people think. I think that um, we we probably signed up another 1,000 to 1,500 people in the couple months after he was elected. So that's, you know, out okay. of 26,000 plus, that's a, that's a real, you know, that's right, not but nothing. it's not like half of your Not at all, not at all. We have, basically, again, we started the program in the end of 2012 for very specific reasons about what we, what we saw sort of coming down the pike uh, to the whole sort of digital publishing world. For the first... Uh, year, almost two years, we sort of ran it on a pretty kind of lo-fi basis. And the growth has been pretty consistent 15, 16, 17 into 18. If you look at it, you know, kind of charted, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty consistent. So there's a bump after Trump was elected, but that is not that was not a game changer for us. Okay, so you don't have to worry about a big like Trump churn as people sort I of... I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, we have... The other thing, the other thing about not chasing scale is that scale and eyeballs are not an audience, and that is really what a lot of the the people playing in the scale place have realized. Uh, we do not have a huge audience. Um, it's big enough for us, mm-hmm. but it's not huge. Um, I mean, just to give people, just to give. But pe- in truth, a lot of the people with big numbers don't have a very large audience either. Well, that's the key. That's the key. When you come down to what is really your audience, people who come to your site on a daily basis, yeah. know they're coming to your site, not just because it's getting fed to them so aggressively on Facebook, and would feel that they were losing something if you no longer existed. Mm-hmm. That is your audience. And and those numbers by necessity are going to be a lot smaller than the big top line numbers that everyone likes. Exactly. To You're not going to have about. like 50 million people yeah. who are truly an audience. So when you have that audience, you can, you can over time work to bring them over to becoming subscribers, not all of them. Uh, What's like a percentage that you look at for being able to convert 
out of your audience? You know, it's funny. As, as probably everybody in digital publishing knows, it is very hard from what are considered the canonical audience number sources to get a sense of what they mean. So, if like, for instance, we have, you know, you're not supposed to talk about these things, but uh, we have like four to five million uh, uniques as by Google Analytics. That's that just to give people a kind of an apples-to-apples mm-hmm. sense of our scale. Um, now, if you look at, but what is what is that what does that translate to? Like, who knows? Like even by right. Google Analytics, half of those people visit the make contact with the site once over a month. So clearly, those are people who don't even know we exist. Those are people who are kind of bouncing into the site through some you know means. We don't really we don't really um, we don't we don't think of it in 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 those terms. We 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 do look at um, the number of basically the number of page views at a given time that are being consumed by subscribers. That's a kind of a key metric. That mm-hmm. we, we follow that closely. Um, how we look at it, what our goal is, there is a certain population of people who come to our site multiple times a day every weekday. We want all of those people to sign up. That okay. is our goal. And and there are, so you segment yeah. them out and then and then try to we message we, them. We do some things like that. They're probably it, it is overstating the sophistication to call right. it, call it no, segmenting. I can understand, <laughs> uh, but we but but yes, we 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 at various points as we have built that uh, subscriber base up to where it is now, um, we have definitely focused on you know, people who are coming to the site multiple times a day to kind of hit, you know, hit them more, more aggressively. So how hard is it to have, because I think one of the difficult, and to be honest, a lot of these questions, uh, we're trying to figure out our own membership program. Yeah, so no, there's, totally, totally. there's two purposes to this interview. Um, but one of the things that's a, ch- a challenge is how do you have a free product and then you have this membership product and, you know, you can have people who say, look, I love your free product. Get your email every day, read it, you know, you guys do mostly good work and right, stuff right, like this. Right. And then you're like, and then like, I'm good with that. Well, that's, it's a really good question. And we have, like I said, we, we've been doing this for going on, on six years, even though, as I said, at the beginning, it was a much, it was sort of like a side little thing we were doing. Um, and we have, we have experimented and learned a lot. Certainly at the beginning, how we thought we would do the sort of the special content that only you got access to if you're a subscriber was doing long form you know kind of magazine type articles and one difficulty we had and what was something you and i were just talking about before we we started recording is that you build a publication to do a certain thing and our publication is based on fast-moving iterative coverage of news and politics Mm -hmm. and you you know you build a sprinter to sprint and you right. build a marathon or a marathon. Yeah. And it's like a sports team. Like exactly. You have an identity. Exactly. If you exactly. score a lot of points, you're probably not going to be great at defense. Yeah. It, and so and and so one issue we had was that all right, who's going to do these who's going to do these long form pieces? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to edit them? You know, so you have you you have certain things where you're not designed to do certain things. But the other thing that was I think Then you, you either have two teams and two products. And that other team if it is if 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 you if your main thing is X and you say all right we're gonna do a little Y on the side that Y team 
is not really going to be part of the X team. Yep. And they're not going to be part of the identity or have the experience. So it's a it's a problem. The bigger problem, I think, for us was that what you were just kind of alluding to, which is that um, a lot of people was like, hey, man, love TPM, love what you guys are doing. I'm good with TPM. Like, I don't know about this these articles. That you're Like, I don't need that, right? And when you then you compound that with, we're probably not doing it as well as the places that are designed to do long form. Mm-hmm. So it, that was, we, we're still doing some of that, but we realized over a while that wasn't really ideal. So what we, as is often the case in life and in business, eventually after a lot of frustrating failed attempts, you, you realize what is obvious. And that yeah. is that, that we need to find something that is, that we do well and is kind of essential to the thing that people already like and have a part of that that you need to be a subscriber mm-hmm. to, to do. And um, that is the model, that is basically the model that we have right now in terms of the, the, the content that you get if you're a subscriber. But what we have, we have tried to mold that to something that is, that fits with the publication. And one of the things that we have always done back to when it was just, when I couldn't use the plural, this isn't the royal plural, I mean, you know, we, all of us who do this stuff, <laughs> was trying to break down the wall in sort of the fourth wall of journalism. Not talking to you in like leads and without the first person and stuff like that, but the way editors talk with each other. So what we've tried to do is is create a layer of the fast-moving content that breaks down that fourth wall a little bit more. Editors, backgrounders. So sort of like where, the, where an editor will you know, kind of write out a short piece that is not the way the articles talk about the story to readers, right. but the way that editors might talk about the story and kind of game, all right, we're going to look at this, look at that. So we we have, that that has been sort of our evolution. It's a version of access, access to, to what editors are really thinking. Exactly, exactly. It, that, is, that is the main part of it. We do, you know, we do what we call primers, which is... Uh, our audience is news junkies and everybody, you know, no one has enough time to keep up on everything. So we, one one thing we, we do is we have these primers where we have an a, a reporter who's on a given beat, i.e. immersed in that beat. And once a week we say, all right, take 500 words and tell the reader every key thing that happened this week. And don't go over 500 words. Um, so again, these are these are things that are kind of uh, build out of what we're good at, what people feel they need us for, and create a layer of that that you need to be a subscriber for. And that is, seems yeah. to be working. It seems like it's 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 part of your main thing, but it's differentiated enough so that it's clear to people why it's unique. Right, and there's some logic to what is public, what's subscriber. But I think the, the, the key really comes down to, and I think this is the part that's probably applicable to other publications, it has to be something that the people who felt they had to have the main thing mm-hmm. will feel they have to have this sort of somewhat new thing. And right. that's going to have to be that they are very similar. Because if you, again, if... If, if it's if, totally different, it's... Yeah. it's we used to joke about the when we were planning uh, our own membership program the, about the football phone. 
it's like do you remember that sports illustrated used to they yeah, used to vaguely, they used vaguely. to ask to get subscribers they oh like, right you get this and you get the swimsuit issue and then right. finally they're like and you get a football phone right like <laughs> uh, yeah but football is not my it's not part of my phone lifestyle right yeah <laughs> exactly yeah, um, that makes sense so uh you talk you, you cover and you write a, a lot about you know, obviously the collision of, of Google and Facebook with, with politics now on many different fronts. Um, but let's bring it back to, to the, the, the media industry. Um, obviously, the power of Google and Facebook within this industry is something you've addressed uh, um, on TPM a few times. Are we at the point where politicians, probably not here, but maybe in Europe, have to try to look to break up Google and or Facebook? You know, I don't know. I mean, my my personal politics are such as that I believe that antitrust enforcement is a, is something that should be, um, you know, I believe in that. I think monopolies are real. I think government has a role in breaking up monopolies. I don't, I don't completely know how that applies to the platforms. Um, I do think, I mean, let, let's just take forcing Google yeah. to divest itself of DF of double click entirely. That would be, yeah, that would, I guess I would say this. Google now owns so many different architectural, kind of architectonic parts of the advertising industry mm-hmm. that in my mind, there's just no way that it doesn't count as anti-competitive. Just no way. It's so, impossible to run a publishing business and not have it to, in some form or fashion be dependent on Google for something. And I would, you know, impossible not to have it be dependent on for like most parts of, I mean, even, I mean, just, um, you want to run an ad, you got to do it through DFP. Oh, you want to measure your site. You're probably going to use Google analytics. Yeah. Analytics. I mean, if you probably, you are getting a, a significant, at least a non-trivial amount of money through Google as an ad seller, as a, as a, as a, broker of ads like through addicts through addicts um you are almost certainly you know you are highly likely to be using some version of dfp i.e the architecture that runs the ads you know you obviously you you know all this i all of that stuff combined can't that can't make sense uh, for but this unhealthy yeah. concentration, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's different in in Facebook's case and Google's case, but I mean they both have an I think a, a concentration of power. Yep. A quick break to remind you about the early access to the Digiday podcast that is available if you join Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium subscription program, and if you join, you'll also get Digiday Magazine, invites to exclusive member events, a steady stream of valuable research briefings on the important conversations that are happening at our many events around the world, and much more. It's only $395 a year, and I promise you it will be worth it. Sign up now. Visit digiday.com, and you'll find the Digiday Plus tab in the menu bar. Obviously, in the United States, we've always preferred um, for markets to work themselves out. And in Europe, they're obviously more activists, and we're seeing that with GDPR and mm-hmm, other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder whether or not we're at the point where... the, the it's really hard to see market dynamics really changing this. And I know a lot of times, you know, people think that it was like Microsoft yeah, we, we are trying that, yeah, to, exactly. they're trying to break up Microsoft. Although there's also, there's also, I think a decent argument there that even though in some ways the federal government failed to do what it was trying to do, it, it sort of brushed Microsoft back from the plate enough. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite plausible that they could have 
entrenched their their market power much more had the federal government not been involved in the late 90s. Still, it is, even so, uh, most of us could not foresee that the desktop and Windows would so dramatically see, you know, lose so much of their dominance. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, all, what I have tried to focus on when I write about this is just making sure people understand the scope of the market power and how it is, basically how it is affecting the publishing business. How much, you know, it's, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's like iTunes and Spotify in the sense that you have tech slash network companies come into a space, dramatically demonetize an industry in the sense that just there's much less money being made in music in general now as opposed to, you know, 25 years ago and grab a huge percentage of what's left. It's that's very similar big picture to what's happening in publishing. But I mean there's other things that even I mean I know you know but that people don't I don't think understand about the role of you know, private marketplaces with right. with Google and stuff. I mean, it's just. I appreciate that you try to industry. explain these to your readers. It's, yeah, it's well, good. it's it's you know, it's you, don't, it's you don't usually get ad tech talk in the wild. Well, it, you know, it's it's I'm in this sort of in in this kind of unique position because because we are an independent company, I am I I am I I have a very talented I have a very talented team in general, but we have built up the sort of the publishing side of the business over the last few years. And so I am I am just starting to be able to, over the last couple of years, sort of, you know, not day-to-day running parts mm-hmm. of the business. But I'm heavily involved. And you don't have many people who are, have an editorial voice, who write for a living, who write kind of in the, in this space, who are that tightly involved? I mean, mm-hmm. for what you for what you guys do, that's the exception, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the other thing is that if th- there's a big there, there's there are tons of disadvantages to being small and independent as a business, and they mainly speak for themselves. One of the key advantages is that you tend to see trends earlier than your bigger competitors, and a lot of that is that you have less capacity to be in denial. That's if true. you are really big, you don't have the resources to be in denial. Exactly, you don't have the resources to be in denial. And when you are really big, you can kind of fool yourself that you know, yeah, yeah that's the trend, but we're going to beat the trend. When you're a little player, you're not going to yeah. beat the trend. I bet the you didn't even consider you. pivoting to video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I mean, it, yeah. Well, here, here's the thing: we. Back way back in 2007, 2008, we actually did a show, a daily show. I mean, it took so much of my time, I can't even begin to describe to you. There was a startup uh, that was eventually like acquired by Google, but wanted to fund shows. So we had a license thing. So basically, monetization wasn't our problem. We had a, you know, we got a check to produce the show. So we produced the show. So what I, but what I realized, and that's obviously like literally 10 years ago, but for a site that is basically about text, about fast-breaking news, it's really hard to get people to watch video. Yeah. And people loved it, but kind of like nowhere near, you know, we'd struggle to get like, you know, 
10,000 video views for the show that we, that wasn't some, you know, BS thing that we sort of put together with kind of, you know, flying around text. This was like a five minute real show. And uh, maybe four or five years ago in our direct advertising business, you know, you get the RFPs and you see more and more, we really want video content, really want video content. And then it's, your RFP is going to be, will be heavily judged by how much video content you have. Right. Because we got video. We really want to show the video. And so believe me, like I'm a businessman. Like I really wanted the video. I wanted <laughs> to be able to run those video ads badly. But I also understood, and, and, and my ad seller at the time, who is wonderful and now off at, an, at another startup doing more great work, um, she really wanted the video ads. But I knew how hard it would be. I knew mm-hmm. it would be, and not just hard, that we would struggle really hard and still not have that many video views. And the other key was, it was clear to me that the whole, as things moved on, that this really wasn't about video views. This was something structural to the entire digital advertising industry. Um, and that when you, when you saw people vi- you know, kind of pivoting to video over the last... You know, now it's a joke, but six right. months ago it wasn't a joke, and a year ago it was gospel. Um, when I saw that happening, I was close enough to the day-to-day fight to sustained ad revenues that I knew that money wasn't going to be there. It was right. just a, it was just a, the sort of the last shiny object as people struggled to. Mm. Well, it was also a lot of them were like VC funded publications. And I I sort of look at it as like the end of a basketball game where you just try to extend the game and you try all sorts of things. You want to try hack a shack. You want to try different things. So there's nothing wrong with that. But like a lot of these companies, it seems to me, were funded on mismatched expectations for what was going to happen to a digital advertising market as TV money moved over. A hundred percent. And so when that didn't happen, you got to go to some other play. No, totally. I'll tell you, you know, I was involved in, you know, kind of tangentially involved in in another venture, you know, not anymore, kind of ran for a couple of years, whatever, and was involved in in, uh, basically trying to get investors for a different, you know, kind of lineup, uh, uh, VC investors for um, another venture. And, And so I talked to TPM, has no VC, has never had VCs, doesn't want VCs, whatever. But I got a window into sort of those pitch conversations. And, you know, less than a year ago, the confidence of the big VCs in this city, in New York, who play heavily in media, saying, you know, we got these sites, man, where it's Facebook video is the thing. That's the thing. If you're not, if you're not moving Facebook video, there's no... There's no conversation. And I was trying to, you know, I, I wanted them to, I had an interest in having them think differently. But I was stunned how, how much the people with the big money mm-hmm. and looking to invest didn't seem to get what was happening in, the, in, in digital publishing. Well, a lot of it, they're probably not in the day-to-day. 
So that's the case. It's a different. That's, it's a different version. Absolutely, it's a different absolutely. view. If yeah, yeah, absolutely. you can be in a spreadsheet and stuff like this. But yeah, it's a different absolutely. when you're in, in it every day. Um, so, how many people is is TPM now? Uh, it's around twenty five people, and it's been it's okay. been you know in that neighborhood profitable. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. You when you're independent, you don't have a choice. You got to be profitable. <laughs> <laughs> There's nowhere to fall, right? I mean, you, yes, I mean it's 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 it is more profitable some years than others, but yes, it is profitable because it has to be profitable. Okay, and the future is to continue the sort of incremental growth. Yeah, we 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 uh, have grown each year, going back many years. We want to continue with that. We have no, we are not looking for any scale. Uh, and our, we see our future as A, with, with a, a dominant uh, position for subscriptions, but also finding things, finding revenue sources that are based on a direct relationship with people who are really into our site. We still do advertising. Okay. We're not getting getting out of advertising, but They're that's not what the t-shirt business or something. Yeah, hopefully something that will be a little a little. <laughs> so coffee mugs. Yeah, well, even even more <laughs> ambitious. But you know, it, it's. But I'll tell you what we are. We're 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 we have some stuff we're working on yeah. with books, right? Yeah. I mean, that's again things where you have a direct relationship with people who care about your site. And you haven't done events much. We. Not really, um, and we've thought about it, and I think I, I think we probably will over the next couple years. It's always been, um, you know, we're a small operation, as as yeah. you know, events. There's you gotta a lot, be in it. To yeah, win it. yeah, exactly. There's a lot of different I mean, sort of muscle memory here, you need. We have a team here that executes, I think, like sixty events a year. They'll be. A, they were in Santa Barbara last week. They'll be in Portugal in a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, when you are like an army. Yeah, just, I mean, when you are a small company and you've got you know your your editorial team and your publishing people and you're this, and you're like, all right, who's gonna yeah. who's gonna find a venue? And everybody's like, you know, crickets, crickets. <laughs> so it's something that you, I have, I have great. It is it is precisely because of my of my respect and even limited understanding with what is involved in putting on quality events that we have been extremely cautious. I think we'll do some small stuff, but I don't think we're, I don't think we would ever be sort of doing what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, it's hard and takes, it takes a lot of, a lot of investment. So we're, I think we're going to, we're going to dip our feet, but in ways that are consistent with that basic strategy that I just described. Okay, so a couple political questions, just because I'm Trump curious. Yeah, yeah, totally. Where does the Michael Cohen thing go next? Is this the big? Is this the bigger story than the um, than Mueller? I think it will eventually become the same story. That's my take. He, uh, I, so Trump's right that Mueller is just this is an extension of the Mueller. Um, Mueller's using the. I'm not sure there. about that. I'm not sure about that. I I think that. Let's put it this way. I've been, I've been writing about Cohen for like a year and a half. He is at the center of the Russia money channel of Trump's that goes back years before Trump got involved in politics. So if there is collusion, if there's kind of bad stuff at the bottom of you know what Mueller is looking into, it will have grown out of that money channel. So I suspect the things will 
uh, merge into each other. I will say this though, that, that it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Mueller has signaled that he's probably going to release a report about whether or not the president obstructed justice in the next month or two. So that will make a big, you know, that will get him back in the back in the news pretty aggressively okay. when that happens. Would you make a $1,000 bet that Trump would be impeached? I Not am, convicted, impeached. The only way I look at it is whether he will be removed from office. And I think that is not likely at all because to be removed from office, you have to suffer a catastrophic loss of support among in your own party. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think the Democrats will take back the House. That will mean they can impeach him. I guess what I kind of see happening in twenty in twenty nineteen is, do you impeach the president if you know he will not be removed from office? Because not being removed from office means literally being acquitted, right? And, so and look what happened to Clinton. He got more popular. Well, he got more popular even in the in the in the beginning of it. I mean, I I'm, I'm not sure that would happen with Trump. But regardless, it is. It is certainly something that the president can see as like an exoneration. Like, okay, you impeached me. I was acquitted. Now I'm good. We're done. So I don't, I think that will be a wild card, and I don't know how it will be resolved uh, through 2019 Mm -hmm. and 2020. Again, the key is to be removed from office, a president has to suffer a catastrophic loss of support in his own party. And if anything, support, for Trump among Republicans has been increasing. Yeah, and in it's never months. happened. So, which has never happened. The removal. Oh, well, it well, I think Nixon is the example because he probably would have been, but he but that is the case where he did have a catastrophic at the end he had a catastrophic yeah. loss of support in his own party, not just in Congress, but in the public at large. Okay, so yeah. l- last one is yeah. more more likely or less likely to happen Donald Trump is reelected as president of the United States in 2020. I know it's early. I think it is pretty unlikely that he's reelected. I'm not saying it's impossible. Right. I think it's pretty unlikely. Okay. Just give me two sentences as far as I mean obviously we know everything that's going on, but presidents typically do get reelected unless the economy goes into a tailspin. That is true. And I think that people do underrate that factor. I think that I base this on his very high level of unpopularity, which seems to be pretty stable. And the fact that he, he was running against someone who was uniquely his foil in 2016. Yeah. Um, having said that, I didn't think he'd be reelected the first time. So, you know, <laughs> take it for what you, take it for what you will. But I, I, um, you know, your, 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 your point though is, is one that everybody has to remember. Presidents tend to be reelected. Right. So that nobody should be shocked if he's reelected. If anybody is thinking that it is impossible and that's just. Spending too much time in New York City. Well, they're just not, <laughs> not looking in history. Yeah. Basically. Okay. Josh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Congrats on keeping an independent business. Oh, oh you know, uh, as this long is as knock a, on wood. This is a tough market. So always, always like to see people doing it the independent way. Thanks so much. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please subscribe to it. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now also on Spotify and anchor.fm. Uh, and while you're there, please rate us and leave a review. This helps people find the podcast. I also like to read reviews. 
So be creative. I want to give a quick shout out to Jason Wakeup, who I ran into near my apartment last week. And he told me that he and his wife, who are both co-founders in uh, Mind Body Green, are loyal listeners. Thank you, Jason and Colleen. Also, a thank you to Jeffrey Kutnick, who uh, tweeted to me saying, been binge listening to the Digiday and Digiday Live podcast, hyper relevant and entertaining. With HuffPo leaving UGC, I'm curious if you think that publishing model might be on its last legs. My short answer is yes, of course it is. The UGC model of publishing is challenge because to do that at scale, you can't really protect your own brand or the brands of your advertisers. And you certainly can't do subscriptions with it. So these days, I think that model is not looking so great. Thank you, Jeff, for binging on our podcasts. I hope all of you binge on them regularly. We appreciate uh, the time you spend with us. Um, Stay tuned. Next week, we'll be back with another episode.